0: up, everybody? Welcome to the WTH breakout episode number 23. So we're not doing a normal show today. We're doing a, a breakout episode because uh Wilson has a little bit of a schedule change, and it is the uh spring season, and just timing and scheduling gets a little weird around this time of year for us with anniversaries and birthdays and just vacations and trips and stuff. So I'm figured I'd throw a little something I've been keeping secret for you guys for a while out here. So, uh, when we first moved to West Virginia, uh, one of the first things we did was we went around our town and we were looking at like what stores are in our area. Um, cause we don't know, like, do we have a Best Buy? Do we have this, you know, where's the nearest Walmart, whatever. So there was this little bookstore. Um, I think it's actually more of a bigger chain called books a million, but it says, bam, right on the outside. Well, I went in there and I'm like, I want to find a book that tells me more about West Virginia and my area. So I bought a book called the big book of West Virginia ghost stories. Cause I figured, Hey, here I am in the, uh, area where it's most haunted and with cemeteries and civil war lore and all that figured I'd, you know, get this book and it might be kind of cool to tell some stories from this book on the, uh, on the show. So it's written by Rosem- Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and I think she has since passed away. Um, so I was going to actually reach out to her, see if we could get her on the show for the other, the, you know, the real debutate show. But, you know, she's passed away. So maybe, you know, when I do the editing on this, her spirit will come in here and like, you know, show up on the episode. Who knows? Um, but I have a couple stories I picked. I'm only going to read one today. Uh, and this one I'm reading today is on the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which is in the uh, Northern part of the state. And I'm going to do this story with a little bit of a twist, but before we do the, the story and everything, I just want to give a shout out to our sponsors, uh, MSR arms, uh, make sure you go to MSRARMS.com. use offer code WTH five for 5% off your entire purchase thin line brewing. Like we said on the other episode, they're going to be, uh, shutting down here, um, fairly soon and moving to Tennessee. So get the get there while you can. They're located in a Rancho Cordova, California, and, a, and that's at ThinLineBrilliant.com. We also have a partnership with Blue Line Soaps at BlueLineSoaps.com. And you, there as well, you could use offer code WTH5 and a portion of your proceeds will go to the Danny Oliver Foundation. And I believe that is it for the business right now. And hopefully you guys enjoy this story on the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. The former Weston State Hospital in Lewis County, better known by its more exotic name of the Transalgany Unetic Asylum, has so many ghosts that it's hard to identify and track them all. Wander any corridor in this vast facility and ghosts will make themselves known. Transalgany ranks as one of the nation's top haunted destinations and it definitely is the crown jewel of West Virginia's most haunted locales. It no longer operates as a medical facility, but is a historic property open to the public for tours and paranormal investigations. Upon arrival at the gates of the Transalgany, you will be immediately impressed by the sheer size and appearance of the place, and for good reason. It is the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America, and the second largest in the entire world, after only the Kremlin in Russia. Thousands of patients, many of them severely mentally and emotionally disturbed, came and went in the century-plus history of the institution, and it seems that the spirits of a good many of them have stuck around. TransAlgany played a role in revolutionizing treatment of the mentally ill, but during its darker years, electroshock, water, and lobotomy treatments were conducted on patients there. Prior to the 19th century, mental problems were considered a family shame, and the afflicted were hidden away. The insane were locked up in deplorable conditions in prisons, poorhouses, and even private homes, with a slim hope of rehabilitation. Some were thought to be possessed by the devil and were subjected to torture and even execution. If they were lucky, they were sequestered at home. Even an attic or a hole in the ground was better than prison, where they were horribly neglected and often chained to walls. It was up to the members of the family to provide their basic needs and many of them were left wanting. In the 1770s, facilities were built specifically for the insane to separate them from criminals, but they were still neglected and seldom received any help to achieve a normal life. In the 19th century, social reformers, including physicians, inaugurated sweeping changes in the ways they were housed and treated. One of the most prominent reformers in America was Dorothea Dix, who almost single-handedly created a new type of mental asylum. A teacher and nurse, Dix served as a volunteer in the Civil War. It was her early life, however, that shaped her destiny as a reformer. Dix was the oldest of three children, born to a mentally unstable mother and an abusive alcoholic father. She had to raise her two younger brothers by default. She became passionately committed to educating girls, and at the age of 15, she opened a private school for girls in Massachusetts. A pivotal experience when she was 41 propelled her into social reform for the mentally ill. Dix visited a jail in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she was shocked to see insane inmates chained naked to walls without heat or adequate ventilation and she vowed to do something about it. She went public about the abuses and lobbied the state legislature until it provided funds to improve conditions. Dix did not stop there. She then traveled about America, Europe, and Asia exposing the deplorable conditions for the mentally ill and campaigning for reform. As a result, the first state hospital for the mentally ill was opened in 1848 in Trenton, New Jersey. Ironically, Dix became a victim of the illness whose treatments she was reforming. From her 20s, she had suffered periodic breakdowns which intensified as she pushed herself to the extreme physically and mentally. In 1881, she admitted herself to the institution in Trenton, where she was given a private apartment and spent the last six years of her life. Dix's reforms had an impact on the conception of trans as did those of Thomas Kirkbride, who had worked with Dix in conceiving the plan for Trenton Institution. Thomas Kirkbride was a Pennsylvania Quaker who wound up treating the mentally ill by default, not design. After obtaining his medical degree in 1832, he aspired to be a highly paid surgeon, but he could not secure residency at Pennsylvania Hospital, a premier facility in Philadelphia. Instead, He was offered a residency at the Friends Asylum for the Insane in Frankfurt, a Quaker facility. The Friends Asylum was more progressive than most institutions, impressing Kirkbride with its moral approach. The Asylum, however, was just a stopping place on his way to a career as a surgeon. After only a year, he obtained his desired residency in Philadelphia and left the world of the insane behind. Not for long, however, his destiny pulled him back. In 1840, Pennsylvania Hospital opened the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane and asked him to be the superintendent. Kirkbride agreed. For the rest of his life, he had a career working with the mentally ill. In his typical fashion, Kirkbride attended to his job with passion and commitment. He educated himself on mental illness, He was particularly interested in how the patients were housed, believing that their lodging had a great deal to do with their prospects for rehabilitation. If patients were exposed to lots of sunlight, fresh air, and pleasant surroundings, he felt they stood a chance of being cured. Keeping them in buildings constructed like boxes was not good. Putting them in buildings with long, narrow wings and lots of windows was. In the 1850s, Kirkbride's own patient population outgrew the hospital, and he was able to put his theory into action with a new facility. The Kirkbride Plan went on to influence the construction of about 300 facilities throughout North America. trans was one of them. Construction of the facility began in 1858 under the state of Virginia, which named it the trans Lunatic Asylum. West Virginia took possession of it in 1861 and renamed it the West Virginia Lunatic Asylum. Later, it became known as the Weston State Hospital. Construction was completed in 1881 in the Gothic Revival style, giving it a rather foreboding presence. The architect, Richard Andrews, adopted the Kirkbride plan, with long wings spreading out from the central core, which has an impressive clock tower Much of the work was done by black prisoners, augmented by stonemasons brought from Ireland and Germany. The stonemasons added several gargoyle faces to the rear exterior walls to ward off evil spirits. During the Civil War, work on the structure was interrupted and the partially built facility became Camp Tyler, a Union military camp. On June 30, 1861, Union troops swept in the town and made a daring raid. They seized $30,000 in gold that was on deposit in the Western branch of the Exchange Bank of Virginia. The money was intended to fund the construction of the asylum, but the Union forces knew it was likely to be returned to Richmond, Virginia to help finance the Confederate Rebellion. Instead, they sent the seized funds to Wheeling and the money helped finance the launch of the new state of West Virginia in 1863. The Lunatic Asylum opened the patients in 1864 with an intended maximum capacity of 250. In the aftermath of the Civil War, when many communities were financially destitute, priority was given to finishing the hospital and Weston managed to prosper. The facility was so huge that when power was supplied by steam and coal, the entire building could not be heated at once. One side was heated and then the heat was shut down and transferred to the other side. Transalgany was intended to be a self-sustaining community and both patients and staff tended a farm on the 300-acre property. A cemetery was created on the rear grounds. There were various outbuildings including a medical center and a morgue, a tuberculosis ward, and a bakehouse. Despite the reforms, conditions were often not ideal. The most difficult patients were subjected to treatments that would consider quite inhumane and barbaric today, such as cold water immersions, severe chair restraints, and cages. The tranquilizing chair, about the size of an electric chair, had an arm and leg restraints, and wooden block that held the head. The cages were suspended from the ceiling. Patients sat in them like animals in a zoo. A person did not have to be obviously mentally ill to wind up at Trans-Allegheny. Between 1864 and 1889, sufficient reasons included head colds or asthma, mental or political excitement, physical disabilities, obvious laziness or lack of motivation, egotism, poverty, homelessness, sexual promiscuity, snuff, greediness, exposure and quackery, jealousy, religion, poor hygiene or gathering in the head. Women who had no rights and were considered the property of their husbands were especially vulnerable to being committed if they suffered from female diseases, broken hearts, depression, menopause, or imagined female troubles. As the patient population grew, living conditions at Transylvania deteriorated. The building suffered a major fire in 1935 and had to be repaired. Over the years, more space was added until the hospital reached its peak of 2,400 patients in the 1950s. In the mid 20th century, new patient treatments were created and were integrated into therapies including at the hospital. Among them were electroconvulsive therapy and lobotomies. Initially known as electroshock therapy, electroconvulsive therapy debuted in medical practice in 1938. Shocking the brain with electricity to induce seizures was seen to have beneficial effects on persons suffering from severe depression and schizophrenia. The use of electricity was the latest development in a centuries-old approach to accomplish the same results by the use of drugs instead. Far more radical were lobotomies. Introduced in 1935, the procedure consists of destroying or severing the connections to and from the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Some patients improved, but others did not and still others suffered significantly permanent damages in behavior including lethargy, dullness, deterioration, apathy, and loss of some motor functions. The first procedures, dichotomies, were done in Europe and required drilling holes into the skulls of patients. The Portuguese neurologist who introduced them, Antonio Igas Mones, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1949, a prize he shared with Walter Rudolph Hess. In America, doctors Walter J. Freeman II and James W. Watts introduced a twist to the procedure in 1936 at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. The doctors adapted the European techniques to create what was called the Freeman-Watts standard prefrontal lobotomy or the transorbital lobotomy. Freeman believed it would revolutionize treatment as it required no operating rooms, licensed surgeons, or even anesthesia. Instead, psychiatrists could do it with an ice pick. Freeman, a neuropsychiatrist, had no formal surgical training, but he demonstrated how easily the job could be done. In fact, the first American lobotomies were done with ice picks collected from the homes of the medical staff. The ice picks eventually gave way too long. Thin, needle-like surgical instruments called orbitoclasts. To perform the procedure, first the patient was rendered unconscious, either with anesthesia, if it was available, or by electroconvulsive shock. The physician would then lift an upper eyelid and hammer the pick through the eye socket into the brain, pivoting it around to cut the brain tissue. The entire procedure could be done in 10 to 15 minutes. Physicians who witnessed the early procedures vomited and fainted at the sight of the pick being driven up into the eye socket. Nonetheless, transorbital lobotomies caught on and were performed everywhere, including at Transallegheny. Physicians touted their benefits beyond mental insanity issues, recommending them to housewives suffering from depression. Even children who had behavior problems were lobotomized. Freeman alone was said to have performed 3,400 lobotomies in 23 states. Some patients died from cerebral hemorrhage. In 1967, he performed his third of three lobotomies on a woman named Helen Mortenson, who then died of cerebral hemorrhage. This was the final straw for the medical community, and Freeman was banned from performing more surgeries. He moved to California. As a number of lobotomies escalated, about 40,000 were done in the United States alone. So did concerns about their adverse effects. There were high profile disasters, such as Rosemary Kennedy, the sister of future president John F. Kennedy, who was left permanently incapacitated by lobotomy done in 1941 at the age of 23. By late 1970s, lobotomies had fallen out of fashion, and there were even campaigns though unsuccessful to have the Nobel Prize rescinded for Monas. The winds of change in such treatments actually began in the 1950s with the introduction of more drug and counseling therapies for the mentally ill. Thorazine became a major medication of choice, dispensed to tranquilize agitated patients. Sometimes patients were given too much and became lethargic with drooling. That, along with the effects of lobotomies, gave rise to some of the unfortunate stereotype images and descriptions of the mentally ill. The changes in treatment, as well as the economic problems, caused Transalgany to decline even more. Mixed in with the insane here were drug addicts, alcoholics, and epileptics. In 1994, its doors as a medical facility were closed and patients were transferred. It sat empty for more than a decade, save for rats. In 2008, Transalgany was sold at auction for $1.5 million to Joe Jordan of Morgantown, who owns an asbestos removal and demolition company. Jordan began renovations and converted the facility into its present incarnation, catering to both historical and paranormal interests. The restoration work is ongoing. The name was changed back to the Transalgany Lunatic Asylum, which some mental health officials criticized as sensational. The name draws attention, however, and more than 120,000 people have visited. The facility has museum rooms that display artwork from former psychiatric patients, along with informational exhibits about the history of the facility and the treatments done there. A research library contains papers, articles, and documents about the facility and the history of mental health treatments. TransAlgany has been featured in numerous documentaries, and reality ghost hunting shows adding to its popularity. Paranormal investigators and even casual visitors seldom leave disappointed with the show of ghosts, both seen and unseen. Persons who are interested in the paranormal side of trans can take one of the facilities tours or book the entire place for an exclusive all-night investigation. Thousands of people lived, worked, and died at trans leaving behind residual impressions and active intelligent presences, some of whom may be earthbound. Violent acts were committed there as patients wounded and killed each other or committed suicide. Many were desperately unhappy. Hospitals and prisons tend to make the best candidates for hauntings because of the emotional trauma experienced there and Transalgany is no exception. It is not known how many persons are buried on the property as headstones are missing. Some say that this is because pigs uprooted them. Others say that the caretaker decided it was much easier to mow the grass without markers. Some of the dead may have been put in the mass graves. The facility is full of general haunting phenomena, including disembodied voices, whispering, screams, especially in the treatment rooms footsteps, clanging doors, lights that go on and off by themselves, moved objects, doors that open and close by themselves, doors that won't stay open or won't stay closed, sudden cold spots, oppressive atmospheres, moving furniture such as rocking chairs that go into motion, sensations of being touched or pushed, orbs, full and partial bodied apparitions, shadow people and smells of perfumes, tobacco, and other odors. Shadow people are often seen in many of the hallways during the day and at night. Sometimes they peek out of open doorways. Hall doors open and close by themselves as people walk by. Some of the voices are clear and emphatic. Doctors had their living quarters in apartments on the second floor. These were later turned into offices People occasionally experience the smell of cigar smoke here. A mysterious handprint once appeared on the glass on one of the doors. After the hospital was completed, staff resided in living quarters on the upper floor, but years later, as the population expanded, these rooms were turned into the drug and alcohol quarters. The area that contained patients undergoing the throes of withdrawal and detoxification has the most activity. Two of the doors here often will not open despite being unlocked. Voices are often heard talking in the hallway as though they are telling stories. On the same floor is a recreational room where children were allowed to play with toys. Here, the ghost of a little boy plays with a ball. Some of the wards have numbers and others have letter designations. Ward F was originally a female ward but it later became housing for male lobotomy and seclusion patients who had exhibited violent behavior. This ward has shadow people, sounds of footsteps, and an oppressive atmosphere that is noticeable to most visitors. A number of violent acts took place here. One day, one of the male patients finally attacked an elderly man who asked him, how are you? The assailant karate chopped the old man and crushed his windpipe, killing him. In a nearby recreation room, a woman patient shoved another out the window, but a balcony prevented a fatal fall. She broke her ankles instead. In a dormitory room, one patient became irritated by another who snored. He recruited several others and they strung bedsheets up over a pipe and hanged the snore to try to get him to stop. They took him down, still alive, but then one of them decided to end it by placing a bed leg on top of the man's head and jumping up and down on the bed until he was dead. They told the staff that he was killed by ghosts. None of the patients who were witnesses had the courage to tell the truth, out of fear that the same fate would befall them. Staff finally learned the truth when they overheard patients talking about the crime. In a rehabilitation room in wards T and V, an unseen presence plays with people's hair. The door of a small, empty storage area refuses to open. Even the maintenance staff is unable to pry it open despite it being unlocked. Every tour guide has seen a presence peeking out from around doorways in Ward 4. This male ward spooks female staff members who do not like to walk through the halls alone especially at night. Patients once played card games at a table in a parlor, and today the table and deck of cards are set up on display. One night, a paranormal investigator who frequents the facility brought along some of his equipment and played cards. A strange pinging sound started on the equipment, like spikes being driven into railroad ties. They deduced that they may have picked up sounds of the construction work on the hospital, A voice said, cheat, about the card game, and then, get out. Once, one of the male guides felt a breath on his neck during an investigation night. He turned around, thinking it was one of the other guys playing a trick on him, but no one was there. Then he heard a voice whisper, get out, get out now. He ran over to his car, jumped in, rolled down the window, and shouted, I am leaving, and I am never coming back. The entire hall of Ward 1 has a strange atmosphere, and the sound of footsteps often follow people. A female investigator once sat in one of the rooms and said, with a laugh, that nothing was there. Suddenly, something grabbed her ankles and she was unable to move her feet. The lights here do not work, but they sway on their own, and there are sounds of someone flicking switches as if to turn them on. The ghost of a short man in period clothing and a hat interacts with people who do not realize he is not one of the living. In Ward R, on the fourth floor, a little ghost girl named Lily plays with a ball, rolling it back and forth across the floor. Sometimes the ghost will do a live demonstration if someone gives the ball a push. The ghost will push it in odd directions. The old Civil War era kitchen on the first floor was closed right around 1980 and turned into a pharmacy once two young male visitors had themselves locked in a closet in the kitchen as a show of bravado and to demonstrate that ghosts do not exist soon they were banging on the door begging to be let out they said that someone was in the closet with them they left and never came back a grouchy ghost named jack haunts the kitchen where he worked as a cook when he was a patient jack is fond of women In a flashlight divination, he will turn the light on when asked if he thinks a woman is pretty. A male ghost friend, a midget, is often with him. In life, Jack looked out for his little friend, and he still does so as a ghost, not taking kindly to anyone who makes fun of him. Jack also is fond of children offering them chocolate milk. The sounds of patients arriving for their meals are heard in the dining room. In the fall, when the staff is quite busy for the Halloween season, beds have been set up here. An invisible presence likes to wake up the sleepers and pull their covers off. Pots and pans can be heard rattling in the kitchen. The sounds of someone putting items in a large cupboard are heard as well. An outbuilding housing the morgue was built around the 1930s. Patients would get upset to see a hearse pull up to the front and collect bodies, so an access was created to the back of the building. At night, shadow people and apparitions are seen moving about in the autopsy room, and the room containing the body rack and two display period coffins. The shadow people are massive and generate an unpleasant energy. In another outbuilding, a dentist office, beauty shop, and barber shop were open to the public as well as patients. Phenomena here include groaning noises, footsteps, and shadow people. A little visitor appears every morning at the end of the hallway. When seen, the figure then zips into a room and peeks around the doorway. Yet another outbuilding in the forensics building, which housed the criminally insane. At one time, women were housed here temporarily while some broken water mains were fixed. Giggling women have been heard here. Even the greenhouse is haunted. A female patient who did not want to be discharged from the hospital set herself on fire and caused the greenhouse to burn. Phantom sounds of people pounding on the windows and crying out can be heard day and night. The graveyard is not visible from the rear of the hospital but is tucked away up the hillside to the rear. Staff members once discovered a man hanging in a tree in the back. He had been missing for some time and no one had been able to locate him and thought he had run away. It is unknown whether he committed suicide or was murdered. These phenomena just scratch the surface of everything strange that goes on at Trans-Allegheny. With almost every tour and every investigation new things come to light. Guides change and the ghosts respond differently to various personalities. The ghosts give the old hospital another world air and a macabre life all its own. So yeah, that about does it for that one. Thanks for listening to that. Uh, That's something new for me to do. Had a little fun doing that. Um, so if you want to know more about the Lunatic Asylum, you go to transalleghanielunaticasylum.com. Um, I'll probably have this in the show notes for you. Um, cause it's kind of hard to spell, but yeah, they do ghost tours, historic tours. And I believe in, um, I think it's in Halloween. I think they shut down part of it and they turn it into a, one of those haunts that I like to go to where it's kind of like a haunted house uh, with scare actors and stuff. And I think, and I think you could also stay the night there. So it's a pretty cool looking building. Um, I haven't gone there yet. A lot of these stories that I'm planning on doing, I'm going to eventually go out to them. So, this one's on my list. Uh, the next story I'm going to do um, on another episode is uh, another place I'm going to go to that's fairly close um, with a pretty cool story about murder. So, but wanted to thank you guys for listening again. Um, and again, uh, thank you to our sponsors. Um, if you like this, uh, you can hear, listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. Pretty much anywhere where podcasts are played, we're there. Um, we are on uh, social media uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, or you could go on the, the real WTH Um If you like this, let me know. I kind of want to know what you guys thought of this. Um, you could either uh, call or text at 916 259 3030 or email us at the real WTH show at gmail.com. And again, thanks for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day. Bye.